One of the most profoundly proud moments of my career was having played a role, along with many, many others, in getting health reform done in Massachusetts. And the Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts Foundation, which the company created under the leadership of the then CEO, Bill Van Fossen, and they created a separate endowed foundation. And one of the first policy initiatives we launched that I had a chance to project manage was called the Roadmap to Coverage. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Sarah Islin is pure sunshine, and she's rapidly climbed the healthcare ladder, driving innovation as both payer executive and government official, including being a key architect of what we now refer to as Romneycare. She's especially excited today to use her leadership position at Florida Blue as a platform to drive social justice through building access and equity, and by addressing challenges like mental health which have caused traumatic experiences that have shaped the trajectory of her own life. This is Tectonics. I'm David Shaywitz. And I'm Lisa Soonan. We're grateful to GE Ventures for their sponsorship today. GE Ventures, multiple paths to big impact. Hey, Lisa. Hey, David. How you doing? Hey, you've been writing about artificial intelligence lately. I thought you had real intelligence. What's the story? <laughs> Every now and then, right? Um, the uh, no, I thought it was really interesting because what I started to recognize was, you know, there's all these efforts to, you know, AI for this and AI for that, and yet when watching the uptake in whether in pharma or in medicine, it seemed really slow. And in trying to understand what were some of the almost the, the reasons for that, what I re- realized is one of the key things that AI in lab, you know, machine learning tries to do is you try to relate observations. Uh, with with sort of with effects, and mm-hmm. you do it in a way where it's it's generally not based on it's independent of mechanism, right? But but in drug discovery and particularly in medicine, it even though a lot of what you decide to do as a physician. Um, isn't as informed by mechanism as you might think it is. That's still the underlying thing. It's supposed the to be the perception of logic. The perception of logic. The idea is that there's an, you know, I mean, we all do agree there's you know, some underlying mechanistic basis. And the idea is you train these doctors in biology and physics and chemistry, and that's what makes them so special. And the ability to understand or at least know some, have some access to mechanism. And so the idea of then being able to present people with, well, here, if this, then this, why is it, well, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I mean, even when that's the basis for so much of what we do, it goes against our sort of what what Kleiman would call our explanatory model. So anyway, uh, we'll conclude a link to that. I thought it was kind of cool. Yeah, I thought it was a great article, actually. And I'm, you know, my favorite slide to show on this topic is the one that shows that AI will give us better French fries. And then the the article next, it says AI will cause the destruction of the earth. So I, you know, I think it's such a complicated issue. And it's everybody wants to talk about it right now, it seems. But back to actual intelligence. Um, Absolutely. Talk a little bit about Sarah, who grew up in a political family in Washington, D.C. Sarah Islin did the obvious thing and went to art school. But when her practical self realized that was a hard living, she eventually found her way to healthcare. initially through an internship at the Visiting Nurses Association, VNA. A serendipitous connection with a lifelong mentor led Sarah down a long and successful path at Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts and ultimately to the Massachusetts State House, where she was instrumental in designing what we now call Romneycare. Her path ultimately led to Florida, where she's now SVP and Chief Strategy Officer at Florida Blue, a.k.a. Guidewell. Welcome, Sarah. So great to have you here. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm delighted to have you. Um, you're part of my uh, posse of friends that I really like, and it's always a pleasure to talk to, to friends who are also so interesting. Uh, you've had an amazing career, but I want to start with the importance of mentorship. Um, how has mentorship been essential to your career progression? Uh, I know you have one guy in particular who, who you followed uh, greatly through his career. 
Yeah, no, I mean, in many ways, I think mentorship and uh, and a lot of luck and timing uh, have been sort of everything. Um, and, uh, and, you know, that and I think just, uh, you know, working hard. But had I not landed in Massachusetts, which uh, uh, was not some great plan <laughs> that I, you know, mapped out uh, and fell in with a group of people who had all been, uh, former Dukakis employees in one way or another, uh, who I met when I started graduate school, that then led me to my first job out of graduate school, where my boss's boss was this uh, mentor that you alluded to, Andrew Dreyfus, who's now the CEO of Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, and who I followed around for four different jobs over a decade. Um, so it, it was really, it's been really important to my career. It's just so striking to me how people, there, there really are these sort of groups that people form. I guess mm-hmm. you, you sort of figure out people who both you admire or, or who you work effectively with. And because you see this in biotech, you see this in so right. many domains right, right. where like once you find somebody like that, you know, you, you, there's like a real tendency to sort of stick with that sort posse. of really, a posse. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I think, and I think, you know, particularly um, when there's a strong leader in that posse, you know, somebody who really wants or who sets the tone for the rest of the group. It's such a valuable what thing. Was it, what was it about this person that, that, that you sort of resonated with or, or that's kept you sort of um, close? Yeah, I mean, I would say, I, well, let's start with the posse because it wasn't just Andrew. It was Nancy Turnbull, who was a graduate school professor of mine at the uh, Harvard School of Public Health, who was part of this posse, and Matt Fishman, who uh, is a senior leader at Partners Healthcare. And I could go on and on and on down a list. Um, but I'd say one thing that they all had in common was it just really both believing that healthcare was a social justice issue, uh, an incredible commitment to access uh, to healthcare for everyone. And it's not a coincidence that this posse were all of the folks. I mean, I could go to John McDonough, uh, who was at Healthcare for All, and then on Senator Kennedy's staff. You know, this was all the posse that ultimately got. Uh, together uh, and helped get health reform done in Massachusetts, which, as you know, became the model for the ACA. So, Sarah, you grew up on Capitol Hill and both your parents worked in politics. And your dad, uh, I remember, is the longest serving chief of staff in Congress. And your mom was in the Carter White House and then was a lobbyist later. But your best Capitol Hill job, and I think maybe your only Capitol Hill job, was at Grubbs Pharmacy, famous for being the retail pharmacy to the elected elite in D.C. What was that like? <laughs> well, it's funny. I It's only in retrospect that I realized that was the launch of my healthcare career uh, and was uh, reflective of uh, I had made this uh, sort of uh, strategic error that provided some great life lessons, but I switched schools when I was in high school and about six weeks into that switch uh, realized that I'd made a mistake but my parents lost a good chunk of change. And so my freshman year in high school, um, I had to get a job um, so that I could, you know, help pay some of that back. And uh, down the block from where I grew up was this lovely, independently owned neighborhood pharmacy that you're exactly right. Uh, (laughs) I had this, I hadn't quite realized it at the time when I got the job, but senators and um, congressmen walked in and out and, uh, and I, I, 
kind of knew what everyone was taking and what their issues were, <laughs> <laughs> um, which I will say nothing about here. Um, yeah, I can only imagine the uh, rampant use of antidepressants uh, and how much that's <laughs> changed and increased over time. So one of the things you talked about when you talked about that experience was was really, I think, maybe some of your early you know, awareness on the social justice front. Uh, was about the lottery. Right, right. And one of the ways in which that job really imprinted on me, and growing up on the Hill uh, in the the 70s and the 80s, Capitol Hill was then, and even still is, though less so now, incredibly diverse, both racially and economically. And so working in that pharmacy, it was a job and a study in contrast. So here you are three blocks from, you know, this incredible center of power in the world, the Capitol and all of the Senate and House office buildings and the Supreme Court. Uh, But there was also incredible poverty. And so these were the early years of the lottery with these gigantic lottery machines where you could, you know, buy either, you know, a dollar quick pick ticket. And one of the things that I noticed that just so imprinted on me was, well, who bought those tickets? It was often people who were living on Social Security. Um, It was often just the most vulnerable um, elderly women who were coming in with literally jars full of change. Um, And on the one hand, I think it was an incredible source of kind of fun for them. But when I worked there after school every day, I was able to see how Um, how much money they invested in the lottery and how often they won. And there was a real imbalance there. (laughs) And that just really imprinted on me in terms of, wow, is this really how we're financing um, our governments now? Well, apparently this is Mitch McConnell's plan for financing, uh, you know, Medicare going forward. So we shall see. Yeah. Um, And I know I know you went from there. You didn't end up in a Capitol Hill job. You went to art school. Um, but you ultimately gave into the family business of fighting for social justice in some form. Um, is that still a big part of your life and your career? It is. Uh, you know, I uh, <laughs> I love you the way you told the, the story of my landing in art school, but it really is. I grew up in this family with these two public servant parents um, who birth, both worked on nuclear arms control issues um, in terms of their areas of subject matter expertise. So I grew up at a very intense dinner table in which you know, I knew what uh, I knew what you know at, at ICBM and SLBM, intercontinental ballistic missiles, meant, and where we talked about the the arms race and you know who which country had more uh, nuclear nuclear weapons in their arsenal. And my response to all of that was to go to art school. Um, but <laughs> uh, but it, I didn't. I'd say about halfway through that experience, I realized that uh, my parents, in a truly beautiful way, but had kind of ruined me. And uh, though I might, <laughs> and I did attempt to run, <laughs> um, <laughs> that ultimately what they, you know, the gift they gave me was to see that having been born into the circumstances that I was born into, I had not just, you know, an obligation, but really an opportunity um, to give back. And I kind of randomly stumbled into healthcare, uh, but it just immediately stuck. How did you wind up doing that? Because it sounds like I can understand how you're describing this sort of very, um, you know, it's not like policy or, you know, I guess sort of, um, you know, like left of center uh, p- political upbringing, um, you have a very strong commitment to the concept of social justice. You're sort of trying, to, you know, you're, you're, you're sort of figuring out who you are. How did that find expression in healthcare? Yeah, um, I wish that it was this really planful story, but I was dating a guy <laughs> after college. I finished my art school degree, but at that point had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do with my life. 
I was dating a guy who lived in Boston. I moved here, and I knew one person in Boston who was a family friend um, who helped me get, at the time, uh, an internship, um, as Lisa mentioned, at the Visiting Nurse Association in Boston. And I ended up working there for three and a half years. Um, and healthcare just immediately stuck and resonated as an issue that affects all of us. Um, that despite the beautiful intentions of lots of people is really broken uh, and inefficient and, um, you know, does not serve us as well as it, as it could. Um, and it just it stuck uh, as a way that I could make a contribution. What, did, what were some of the things that you experienced during your initial VNA days that um, really sort of stuck with you or said, oh, there's got to be a better way? Well, so the VNAs, if you go back to when I worked there in the um, in the late 90s, uh, were entirely dominated at the time by serving the most vulnerable members of our society. So they were generally providing in-home nursing care and personal care um, for folks enrolled in the Medicare program, so seniors and folks enrolled in the Medicaid program. So, you know, either by virtue of being low income and having vulnerable health or being, you know, at the later stages of your life. Um, it just, and, and I would go probably every couple of months, one of the things that the VNA did is insist that uh, folks who were in these jobs like mine, patient care coordinators, would go out every couple of months uh, and tag along with a nurse. And so you were, you know, going into people's houses who, by virtue of being a patient, um, were clearly at a, you know, vulnerable point in their lives. Um, and it just really both imprinted on me, um, uh, you know, how, how lucky I was, but also, frankly, uh, how much the system could serve people better despite, uh, despite the work of the VNA, which was in many cases keeping people out of institutions. So you went from there to Boston and just to please David, of course, went to Harvard um, School of Public Policy. <laughs> I don't know how I got in there, but... <laughs> I know a lot of people who could probably say that and um, studied public health, uh, even though it was school public policy. And while you were there, you got an internship in the state government working on health care rate setting and, and joined the Mass Hospital Association, as I understand it. Right. Yep. You got it. And that's where where uh, Dreyfus comes into your life you, uh, while you're there and, and working in the Blue Cross Blue Shield Foundation, ultimately with him working on healthcare access issues, some of which you talked about. Tell us about that a little bit. What, what did you work on? What was your biggest achievement in that, in that effort? Well, the, the, I, I can take only the easiest little um, slice of credit because uh, it was not my brainchild. I was really just the person who, uh, who led the project. But one of the most profoundly proud moments of my career was having played a role, along with many, many others, in getting health reform done in Massachusetts. And the Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts Foundation, which the company created under the leadership of the then CEO, Bill Van Fossen, and they created a separate endowed foundation. And one of the first policy initiatives we launched that I had a chance to project manage was called the Roadmap to Coverage. And we hired the Urban Institute to essentially map out three different policy scenarios to answer the question, how could you get... Uh, as close to universal coverage in a state as possible. What would those policy options look like? And it was, we did a whole series of convenings. Andrew Dreyfus was the president of the foundation. This was really his brainchild. Uh, and we did a series of convenings over a couple of years, including one where Governor Romney announced his health reform, uh, reform plan. So it was really a 
community, collaborative effort, um, healthcare for all. I mean, there were just, I could go down a long, long list. Partners Healthcare of um, folks who were really critical um, in working together uh, to get this done. Um, but I can't, I, I don't, I don't, I can't imagine how uh, being a part of, and that was the posse that we talked about earlier. It was that posse that came together to work on this across the healthcare community and the business community and government. Um, I do not know how it's possible to top that in my career. So, uh, well, you never know. You're pretty young. You have a lot of opportunity to top it. Oh, I love you even more. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, so I know you went with Dreyfus to then to become chief of staff on the dark side of the plan, the actual plan operations side after spending time at the foundation. And then ultimately, you moved on and became Governor Deval Patrick's Commissioner of Healthcare Finance and Policy, which was the place you had effectively interned six years prior. No management experience, no large budget experience, and a lot of the same people there as when you were an intern, but now you're their boss. So what was that like? Absolutely terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't think people are honest enough about this, so I really try to be really honest. Um, and I was I was scared out of my mind. So it was one of those. I mean, Andrew, who I had at that point had three jobs with at the Hospital Association, the Blue Cross Foundation, and then the corporate side of Blue Cross, was just incredibly supportive and encouraging. And he and that posse and my other um, really critical mentor, Nancy Turnbull, convinced me that I could do it, even when I was terrified. Um, and, uh, it's then that I, I, I literally would sometimes say this in my head like 10 times a day or maybe 10 times a minute sometimes, but I adopted the mantra of fake it till you make it. Yeah. Right. Um, and, uh, and just surrounded myself with a lot of people who were really smart, um, and were incredibly generous, um, you know, with advice. Um, and, you know, I found if I approached that job with, humility and trying to stay really present with what I knew and what I didn't and, you know, recruited one of the smartest people I knew to come be um, the assistant commissioner at the agency who had really deep state government experience. She was really my partner, Kate Nordahl, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and, and, and got through it. And it was probably both the most profound career growth moment um, in, my, uh, in my life but also personal growth opportunity. Um, and so I now really try to, I'm trying to pay it forward and both give other people those kinds of opportunities and have that kind of faith uh, in other people um, as I head down my career. One of the one of the topics that, I mean, and we, we've, we've come back to a bunch is um, different ways people can have impact and private sector, public, um, you know, government. It seems like, you know, here you've had a chance to go from, from it sounds like, you know, really growing up in public sector. Um, and then um, in Massachusetts, you were public and then you were doing insurance. And then um, with the Commissioner of Healthcare Finance, was that, that was um, public again, right? Yep, yep. Yep. What was how what was the contrast in terms of being able to get stuff done and, and and how you sort of resonated with the two different types of roles? And maybe just, you know, maybe when you, you answer that, if you could say just generally, do you think the commercial side of the world or the government side of the world has the most potential to drive innovation in healthcare? So I the most fun job I've ever had in my life were my two runs in state government. It was just an incredible pl- privilege to get to work with Governor Deval Patrick and Secretary Judy and Bigby. And, you know, as we just talked about, I feel like it was a leap of faith in giving me the amount of responsibility they did. Um, I believe that government gets a really bad rap. Um, I think that 
if you, the way that I sort of organize my framework for thinking about who has the most influence to make healthcare better, it, I actually think it's government. Um, at, the, and at the top of the period of pyramid of influence, it's the federal government by virtue of their role as a regulator, uh, by virtue of their role as a purchaser running both the Medicare and the Medicaid programs, by their role as an employer um, that offers coverage for all different parts of federal government employees. Um, I think state government has the next uh, largest or greatest order of influence on healthcare, And after that, uh, it's payers, uh, because in reality, you know, like it or not, healthcare is a business. It responds to financial incentives. And after government, private payers, health insurance companies write the biggest checks and kind of make the rules. So that's I'd love to get back into government at some point. Those jobs are um, just phenomenal, as we've talked about, for growth and, and learning. And you often get more responsibility earlier in your career because not as many people want to do those jobs. Um, they also chew you up and spit you out. I've never had uh, a better job, but I've also never had a harder job. Um, so uh, we're, I'm working on the dark side right now, but I hope at some point in my career to be able to get back. Well, you had when you after your uh, time in the state house, you went back to the foundation of Blue Cross Blue Shield, and then back to the insurance uh, plan, following Dreyfus kind of along the way, and then you got drafted into helping fix healthcare.gov alongside Andy Slavitt. What was the most memorable story about that experience? Every single thing about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was an. Ex- Extraordinary experience. I got a phone call. Um, you know, I'd been on the I'd been on the plan side for just over a year, having been pulled back over by um, Andrew Dreyfus to be his strategy officer, and we were watching on the sidelines, thrilled that the Affordable Care Act had passed, but all um, really bummed to see uh, that Massachusetts was really struggling um, to make the transition because even though the coverage provisions of that law of that law were based largely on the experience of Massachusetts, the implementation, all the details had to change. And so the state, like healthcare.gov, had a very similar stumble with the same contractor. And so I got a call one day uh, from the governor's chief of staff who said, would you be willing to come back and help dig us out? And it was, again, one of those career experiences where I laughed and said, first of all, you know I've never run an IT project before, so I'm really not sure why you're calling me. (laughs) Um, but ultimately, uh, I you know felt that I could be helpful and negotiated taking a uh, thank you, Andrew, a leave of absence from my job at Blue Cross for four months. Went back on the state government payroll. The governor brought in Optum and Andy Slavitt. At the same time, he brought me in because Optum had just engineered the turnaround of healthcare.gov. So we figured if they could do it there, they could do it in Massachusetts, and they did. And we spent four months, you know, in four months, I took a four-month leave of absence um, with Andy as a partner before he went to CMS. We got the state caught up on, you know, more than 150,000 applic- backlogged applications, um, removed the contract, the, the vendor, uh, brought in another one, uh, and, uh, and then ultimately got the, got the project back on track. But, I mean, I was doing daily press briefings. Um, it was... Uh, it was grueling, but I had amazing partners um, inside of state government. I mean, just everybody. It was all hands on deck. Everybody wanted this to be successful. Um, Jean Yang and Glenn Shore and really and the governor, an amazing team. So despite all of the amazing and impactful career experiences you have had, uh, you, you have, like many people, experienced the lowest of the lows as well. 
uh, one of the great loves of your life commits suicide three and a half years ago. And then while you're going through that, your son experienced some severe mental health issues, spent a long time in psychiatric care on his way to getting better. How did these experiences inform your view of the healthcare system? Oh, I'm so I'm so glad you asked. One of the one of the contributions that I'm trying to make now is these experiences have just driven home for me how profound stigma still is around mental health issues and behavioral health issues. And so I figure one of the contributions I can make is to talk about this stuff. Um, and uh, and my son, who's now 17 and doing really uh, very well, although um, you know he suffers from depression and I, this, these things often don't go away and uh, you know potentially haunt you for the rest of your life, even while he's in a really good place and getting great care right now. Um, but boy, there is nothing more humbling um, than than that than that kind of experience. And I think I'm really just now at the point of trying to figure out how, um, with the experiences that I've had, um, and with, frankly, the levers that I have in terms of the organizations that I'm involved with and a part of, um, how to use those experiences to really try to do something impactful. Because, again, there are phenomenal people who work in our healthcare system, um, but there is not nearly enough uh, support uh, for people with uh, going through behavioral health um, crises or their families. I mean, we're in one of the best healthcare systems uh, in the country here in uh, here in Newton and Boston, Massachusetts, and um, we were really on our own uh, trying to figure out how to get my son the care that he needed. And the love of my life, who committed suicide, actually had spent several years. Um, working in the behavioral health community, he was a behavioral health expert, and even just the you know the shame and the stigma that kept him from getting the help he needed is just profound. So we got a lot of work to do. What sort of things are you? First of all, I really am glad you were able to share the experiences with us. I can't imagine it's easy to discuss, but I agree that it's you're really doing a lot of good by communicating about it. What are you doing in the context of your current role to try to? Um, like you're saying, you have access to these levers. What are you trying to do to change the system uh, for the better going forward? Uh, so I actually am doing a lot of thinking with our fantastic chief medical officer, Elena uh, Schrader, Alana Schrader, uh, at Florida Blue, uh, asking herself exactly these questions. So there are many ways in which um, we are we are leading. So we've been doing a lot of work around the opioid crisis and uh, you know, we're an early moving health plan in terms of, you know, taking oxycodone off of our formulary, but we're now really trying to open the aperture and ask ourselves more broadly, particularly around children's mental health, uh, because we know so often folks who struggle with uh, mental health diagnoses are first diagnosed between the age of 10 and 25. And so what can we be doing more um, and we're going through a process right now of actually looking around the country to figure out, okay, where is the best thinking happening and where are the leaders and can we bring those kinds of ideas and programs and, and scale them in Florida? So I would say we're just, we're just starting to put our, uh, to put our plans together and, uh, and scheming together for, for how to really uh, take, uh, take it to the next level um, at Florida Blue. 
Is one of the challenges being able to distinguish, you know, it seems to me, first of all, that, that it's so hard to even get mental health care coverage. And then to the extent that it is, it seems to me that there's a lot of, it's really hard to distinguish good from bad programs or effective from ineffective. And it does, from what I, one of my brothers is a psychiatrist, so sort of watching this from a distance, there just seems to be almost this race to the bottom where people try to, you know, okay, here someone's covered. You try to sort of pay people the least amount and cover the least amount that's possible just to say that it's covered. Um, and d the difference between having someone who's okay versus someone who's great, it, it, there seems to be so little room in the system to be able to um, celebrate that. And, 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 and I was wondering how you're approaching that. Yeah, so it, you've nailed it. And I think that it's both really hard to know um, who's good, but then it's also really hard to find someone who takes insurance coverage. So one of the real challenges that we and uh, you know, many, many health plans struggle with, or I can just speak to, from my own experience as a consumer. So, you know, when my son was in crisis, we live in Newton, Massachusetts. I think there are more therapists in Newton, Massachusetts per capita than probably anywhere else in the world between Newton and Brookline, right? And I could not find at the time I was, a, you know, I was a member of a different health plan that I work for now. I actually could not find a child psychiatrist who had an opening to see my son who took insurance and so part of the reason that my son is where he is right now, and I'm, you know, happy to be able to say he's in a good place and stable, was because I had the ability to write a check um, and to pay out of pocket. And I continued to do that to the point that you made, you know, in a, you know, he spent a month uh, in a, in a uh, adolescent uh, acute psychiatric treatment program. But when he got discharged from that, the services that he had for the following 15 months um, we paid out of pocket, his father and I, and most people can't afford to do that. We were there with some families that had sold their houses and able to support having their kids in these programs. And that's just the kind of stuff that just makes me heart sick. Yeah, I've seen it uh, firsthand. And I was really struck by when my daughter went off to college, how many people of, among her peer groups struggled um, with mental health issues, you know, in their late teens, early 20s, and how... Um, hard it was to get any kind of, you know, help to them. I'm, I'm, you know, like you, I imagine I'm often one who gets called for referrals. And, uh, I, you know, having come out of the behavioral health world myself many years ago, and I, you know, it's becoming harder and harder, I think, especially for young people to find the resources they need. And it's really a, a, an important thing to work on. I know there's a lot of folks trying to innovate here now. I saw a pretty interesting program that they're building at the uh, Children's uh, Hospital in Cincinnati and uh, some other places that are, are really working on some of the harder issues like suicide. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, and I just, you know, I hope, hope to God they are successful. But on a happier note, I want to say I know you're really an upbeat person. You know you enjoy life to the fullest. <laughs> what keeps you going? What, what do you tell other people about resilience and living life having gone through some of these experiences? Oh, boy. I think having one is having a, I'm just so lucky to have an incredible um, support network of, of friends. And so I think, you know, building a life with really deep connections um, has been absolutely just critical for me. Um, and then the other has been having something that connects you to something that feels bigger than you are. And for me, that is mountains. So my sort of touchstone to keep me uh, to keep me sane is I ski as much as I can in the winter 
and I hike as much as I can in the summer. And there's something about just being outside and getting up into the mountains that both reminds me of what a little speck I am and puts all of my, you know, problems and woes in, in perspective. Uh, and, uh, and it's just a good, good, good exercise and good adrenaline rush. Um, so I think those are the two things that really, that really keep me, that really keep me going and keep me grounded. Well, Sarah, thanks so much for sharing those stories, both the personal ones and the professional ones. I mean, I think it's great to think about people who work in healthcare, regardless of what political orientation they may come from, caring about, you know, social justice at a fundamental level, because I think healthcare and social justice are, have, you know, significant interaction effects. Um, and so we hope you are incredibly successful as you continue on your quest here. And thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, guys. Um, I'm so glad to have you in my posse. So thanks for having me. Today's guest, Sarah Islin, was speaking to us from Massachusetts, where she splits time uh, from Jacksonville, Florida. She has such a remarkable list of accomplishments and is such a humble person and a happy, bright spirit, and is joyful about having worked her whole life in either payer organizations or government, which are things you don't normally put together. I know. And while some of her most intimate life experiences have been somewhat traumatic, she manages to always be the most positive person in every room I've been in with her. Wow, it's, it was really striking. I um, I really was happy she was able to sort of describe that, and I, if, you know, it's horrible. I can't imagine what it was like to go through what she's been, but the idea that she's trying to use her experiences and her experience within the system as well to try to really affect change from the inside mm-hmm. is really positive. Yeah, and I think it's also just a reminder to people that even the most successful people, even the people who seem like they have everything together don't always have everything together. There's always a story behind the scenes. And, you know, for every person who feels like they're not good enough or their situation is terrible and nobody else's is, that's, that's definitely not true. You have to realize that every person, you know, has their ups and downs in life and, and to find your way through. I, I, I really couldn't agree with that more. I mean, actually, even as, as you know, sometimes as doctors, you have a chance to almost see that more because people are a little bit more, mm-hmm. more um, you know, in a way open. Um, and as a physician, I recognize how many, you just have no idea the crap people are going through. Yep. And then I also hear in particular, you know, I mentioned one of my brothers who is, a, you know, a psych- psychiatrist in Beverly Hills. Yeah. Um, and, you know, obviously I don't know any details of any of the, the actual people, but he just says, you just have, he always just says, you have no idea what so many people are dealing with. I mean, it was just hearing through the other end mm-hmm. of this conversation of, you just have no idea. Yeah. And I, I couldn't I couldn't agree with more with the last points you were making. Yeah. So I think it means give everybody a break. Endorse. <laughs> <laughs> so you can follow Lisa Sunin on VentureValkyrie.com. And you can follow David's writing at Forbes. We're grateful to GE Ventures for their sponsorship today. GE Ventures, multiple paths to big impact. Take care. Take care. Take care.